turn in your Bibles to Matthew 10. That's what's next. Take your Bibles and turn me to Matthew chapter 10, if you wouldn't mind, please. We're going to read from Matthew 10, starting in verse 32 through chapter 11, verse 1. The good news is that the chairs that we have ordered for the auditorium, hopefully they will arrive this week, the chairs that we have ordered for the auditorium have a little ring in them for these cups, so you will be able to put them in there uh, when we use them. Uh, that would be great. This is the Sermon on Mission, some Bible scholars have called it, and this is part three for us looking at this Sermon on Mission, this commissioning message that the Lord Jesus gave to the disciples before he sent them out. Let's read from Matthew chapter 10, starting in uh, verse 32. So you follow along as um, I read. Whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father. A daughter against her mother. A daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Anyone who welcomes you welcomes me, and anyone who welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. Whoever welcomes a prophet as a prophet will receive a prophet's reward, and whoever welcomes a righteous person as a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And if anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones who is my disciple, truly I tell you that person will certainly not lose their reward. After Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. Now, this is an odd time of year to read this passage of Scripture because if there is anything that people know about the birth of the Lord Jesus, they know what the angels said. The angels on that hill outside Bethlehem said to the shepherds, Peace on earth, goodwill to men. We know that line. We repeat those lines. Peace is a theme of the season. It's uh, in all of our songs. It's written on your Christmas cards. It's part of your decor. You probably have something in your house that says peace, and you've put it out for this special occasion. Jesus is born. Peace on earth. And yet we come to verse 34, and it says... Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace on the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. I think you should put that verse on your Christmas cards next year. (laughs) See if anybody notices. Jesus did not, he very explicitly says, I did not come to bring peace. Now the angels were not lying The angels uh, weren't uh, lying to the shepherds out in the field. Jesus does bring peace, but not the sort of peace he's writing about. We could talk about peace. For example, we could talk about uh, the fact that Jesus brings peace with God, right? 
Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by, through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The whole world, the Bible tells us, is at enmity with God. Every human being born by nature and by choice at enmity with God. There is hostility between earth and heaven. And Jesus is the mediator, the one who has come to make peace. He made peace by removing the source of our enmity, dying for our sins, satisfying the wrath of God, justifying us, making us whole in the sight of God so that we can have peace with God. So Jesus does bring peace. He brings peace with God. Jesus also brings peace among believers. Ephesians 2.14 says, he is our peace. There's something unique about the fellowship of the body of Christ, something unique about what happens when followers of Jesus meet. There is peace among us because the Lord Jesus has come. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul's writing about a group of Christians who are ethnically and culturally uh, distinct and, and, and historically hostile that have been brought together through the Lord Jesus. There's something unique about us as a group of people, we love one another, we are, have peace with one another, we forbear with one another, we forgive one another because of the Lord Jesus. But if you think about this, if we're reconciled to God in a world that's not reconciled to him, so we have peace with God, but not everybody else does, there is going to be new conflict in your life because you have a new friend. You're now friends with God and the rest of the people around you are not friends with God. There's going to be this new conflict. James, the apostle James talks about it in terms of a marriage. When you get married or even as your uh, a relationship with your significant other grows, it begins to redefine and change all of the other relationships you have with members of the opposite sex. If you are married, you don't go out with another woman or another guy for coffee. You don't have dinner with them alone. You don't send long, sweet, sentimental text strings. You don't send them heartfelt cards. Your relationship with members of the opposite sex is different. It's redefined. It's changed because you have a new loyalty. And if... if if you try to continue those relationships with members of the opposite sex other than your spouse, there's going to be conflict. New loyalty. You have a new loyalty. And in this sermon on mission, Jesus is the one who demands that sort of loyalty in the world. A loyalty to him that's going to generate conflict with other people. Dorothy Sayers, the author, I think said this better uh, or uh, expanded on this a little bit. She said, I believe it to be a grave mistake to present Christianity as something charming and popular with no offense in it. We cannot blink the fact that gentle Jesus, meek and mild, was so stiff in his opinions and so inflammatory in his language that he was thrown out of church. It's a little anachronistic there, not church quite yet, but we get her point. Stoned, they tried, hunted from place to place, and finally gibbeted crucified, as a firebrand and a public danger. Whatever his peace was, it was not the peace of an amiable difference. I have not come to bring peace on the earth, Jesus says. 
Now, some of you might think this passage is strange. How is it? So he says, your enemies will be the members of your own household. And you think it's strange because everybody in your family is a Christian. Your dad's a Christian, your mom's a Christian, your sister's a Christian, your brother's a Christian. You have Christian cousins and Christian's aunts, Christian aunts and Christian uncles. In fact, the person who taught you verse 37 that says you have to love Jesus more than your father was your father. He wants you to obey this verse. So you read this. It says a man's enemies will be, uh, uh, your enemies will be the members of your own household. Then that just sounds so strange. Can I encourage you this morning that that strangeness is a great blessing for which you should give thanks to God? It's so weird that you know so many Christians and that they're related to you. That's just weird. It's wonderful, but it's not what Jesus was speaking to these first generation of believers about. Your experience in the world is not normal. Give thanks to God for it, but it's not normal. We have friends, don't we? We have friends who live overseas. And they interact with people every day who are not followers of Jesus, and they interact with them. And and if those people who live overseas in those countries become followers of Jesus, it will change every relationship that they have. Their parents may disown them. Their uncles and brothers may hunt them down. They may lose custody of their children. They may lose their jobs. It will change everything about their lives. I know the circumstances are not identical, but think about what it would be like in the United States for a gay man or a lesbian woman to become a follower of Jesus. Uh, You know, that, that guy who works with you, that woman in your office, your relative... What, what if, if that person is uh, legally married? Fidelity to Jesus means ending that marriage. To get baptized and divorced in the same month as an expression of fidelity to Jesus. Turning to Jesus means radically redefining all of their relationships. What if they have adopted children with their same-sex partner? What does this mean with custody? Is following Jesus worth such a radical redefinition of your life? If I turn to Jesus, it's going to change. They might say, it's too costly. It will cost me everything. Some of you, maybe this passage is strange because some of you, and give thanks to God, some of you have not had to wrestle like that with following Jesus. Uh, This is a passage that argues that following Jesus does not bring peace. There's another way for us to think about this conflict that Jesus has in mind. Think about the conflicts that have happened in your life over the last several months about what to do with COVID-19. Is there anybody in your life that you're disagreeing with about this? Anybody in your family that you're arguing with about whether or not you should get together for Christmas? or wear masks, or not wear masks, or get a vaccine, or not get a vaccine, or shot. Have you had any sort of disagreements with anybody in your life over this? What if following Jesus was as thorny for you as dealing with the coronavirus pandemic has been? 
That sort of conflict, that, that flavor of conflict is in the background as Jesus speaks to his disciples to send them out on this mission. What I want to do is I want to point to you in this text, I want to show you three reasons why Jesus doesn't bring peace. And all three of them have to do with Jesus' demands and what he demands of us. Because of his demands, he does not bring peace. The demands that he makes bring conflict into your life. And one of the things that we have to see in the text is that the demands that he makes are rooted in his extraordinary authority. Jesus makes demands that introduce conflict that are a reflection of who he is. If Jesus is just a moral teacher or if Jesus is just a, 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 an impressive miracle worker, it is ludicrous to give him this much authority in your life. There is no one else in existence who has the right to demand this level of authority in your life. Jesus must be more than just a moral teacher. He must, ju- must, be, must be more than just a miracle worker if he's going to make these demands. I, I want to show that to you as we go along. But notice here, Jesus demands three things. Number one, that you acknowledge him publicly. Jesus demands that you acknowledge him publicly. I'm thinking of verses 32 and 33. Whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. Now, on the surface, this is not a difficult verse. Following Jesus, there is a public element to following Jesus. We are not part of a secret society. We do not operate underground. We don't have secret handshakes. We don't have a private membership list. Now, I know there are places in the world where that is uh, secrecy is more necessary. Even there, though, there are moments when following Jesus will be, must be made public. For us, as as followers of Jesus, one of the first and most significant ways in which your faith goes public is by getting baptized, publicly testifying through baptism to your faith in the Lord Jesus. Uh, uh, Several years ago, Rolling Stone magazine did an interview with a woman by the name of Tanya Donnelly. She's an alternate uh, uh, rock musician. And look what she says. Uh, This is interesting. uh, Rolling Stone had this uh, quote from her. For some reason, God is embarrassing to people. It doesn't embarrass somebody to talk about how they got completely bombed the night before and puked all over themselves, but God is a really embarrassing subject, and that's kind of strange. She's right, that is kind of strange. There's this public element to following Jesus, and here Jesus is bringing that up. When I go to school sports or I go to band competitions uh, uh, to watch my children play or perform, I wear a Penn Manor sweatshirt and I wear my Penn Manor hat because I am loyal to the Penn Manor Comets a little bit because of my children. Right? Uh, your loyalty to Jesus will be made publicly evident. It will go public at some point in time. That's probably not the part of this verse that you struggle with the most. Probably the part of this verses that you struggle with have to do with the implications because Jesus seems to indicate here that your eternal destiny is tied to your public testimony. If you own me before others, I will own you before the Father. If you deny me before others, I will deny you before my Father. You might struggle with that. You, sh- you should not struggle with that, but that's not the hardest part of these verses. I think the hardest part of these verses is when Jesus stands there and says, uh, your eternal destiny is tied to your relationship to me. 
Who does he think he is? Up to this point in time, he has most of the time spoken to uh, the disciples about your father, your father in heaven. But here, when your eternal destiny is online, Jesus says, my father. And your standing before God is directly related to your relationship with me, Jesus says. That's an astounding claim. It ranks up there with what he said in this very familiar passage that we think is so sweet and comforting, yet is also somewhat threatening. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There is no other way to have eternal life except through the Lord Jesus. Now, the question, though, comes, what happens? Do you have this question? What happens to people who have acknowledged him but now disown him? That's perhaps the trouble with this word disown. I'd like the word deny there. I think that would be better because disowning implies former ownership. I used to own him, now I disown him. What, what about that? Notice Jesus actually does not say anything about that at all. According to this passage, there are two groups of people. Jesus is dividing the world into two groups. There are those who acknowledge him and those who deny him. Did the deniers once believe? Jesus doesn't say anything about that at all in this passage. And let's make this even more complicated, shall we? Look at Matthew 26. Matthew 26, later in this gospel. Jesus is speaking to his disciples. He's about to be crucified. Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I will go uh, before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, oh, Peter. Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away, Jesus said to him. Truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny. There it is, the same word from Matthew 10. You will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. So what's, what's happening with Peter here? And how does he fit and his experience fit into Matthew 10, verse 33? I raise this issue because some of you, you read this verse and you think about that time in your life, you're a follower of Jesus and you should have said something and you didn't. You had an opportunity to publicly represent the Lord Jesus and you didn't do it. You were a coward, you were ashamed, you were intimidated, and you didn't speak the way you should have. And you know it and you read verse 33 and you think to yourself, is this me? Is Jesus going to disown me before God? I don't think that Jesus here is talking about a moment of weakness like Peter's. I think he's talking here about this settled commitment, a, a sort of firm, absolute denial. Jesus is not Savior. Jesus is not Lord. A very settled, firm, absolute denial. He's not talking about moments of human weakness that we all experience at times. 
And yet there's a reminder here in this text, isn't there? So uh, there is this reminder that there will be a time for all of us who are followers of Jesus when you will have an opportunity to identify him as Savior, to go public with your faith, take that opportunity. Let me ask you a question. How long can you be friends with someone before they know that you're a Christian? How long can you be friends with someone before they know that you're a Christian? What's a reasonable amount of time for them to know you uh, and for you not to speak to them about your faith in the Lord Jesus? It's an interesting question to ask because some of you... uh, Some of you have been friends with with people for a long, long time, and you've never talked to them at all about being Christian, and it's embarrassing. At this point in time, if you think to yourself, I'm going to be a great evangelist, now i got to go tell the people who I've known for 25 years about the most important person in my life, that's embarrassing, right? What's a reasonable amount of time for you to be friends with someone before uh, they know that you're a Christian? It's December. School started in August. I know the school year has been weird. Is there anybody in your homeroom who doesn't know that you're a follower of Jesus? What if you, if you made it a goal but that before the season is over, everyone on your basketball team knows that you're a follower of Jesus? I'm not sure necessarily you need to bring it up in the first five minutes of conversation when you meet someone, although it's a, it's a, that's not a terrible idea. I've told you before about Mark Dever and what he did with his doctoral advisor. He went to Great Britain to get his PhD, and he met with his doctoral advisor for the first time. This man was not a Christian. Mark Dever was talking to him, and he said to him in the first five minutes of his conversation, he said, I should let you know I'm a fundamentalist Christian, and I'm going to be praying for you. How shall I pray for you? You let me know. If you have any prayer requests, I will pray for you. He said, let's just let it out. Let's just, let me just tell you where I'm coming from. Don't be afraid. There are deniers in the world. There are people who deny that Jesus is the Savior, and your acknowledgement of him will create conflict. Jesus did not uh, come to bring peace between you and, and the deniers. He demands that you acknowledge him publicly. Secondly, he demands that you love him preeminently. He demands that you love him preeminently. He talks about two things. First, he, loves that you, he demands that you love him more than your family. That's in the first few verses here. In verse 34 is interesting. Uh, he says, I have come to bring a sword, a sword. And some people have interpreted this to mean that Christians should form armies and go force convert the whole world. Here's the, conver- uh, here's the uh, biblical justification for the Crusades. Let's get, get armed and let's go make people be Christians. Except the problem with that is he says sword and then immediately he talks about your family. He's not talking about the battlefield here. He's talking about your your family. Um, Following him may slice through your family like a sword, but he's not telling you to to force convert with a gun anyone. And he talks about that your, your closest human relationships, a man and his father, a daughter and, his, and her, her mother. The, the, the thought that Jesus has here is, is that not that you're going to turn against them because of Jesus, but, because, but they're going to reject you because of Jesus. It's important to think about that. There are some followers of Jesus who their family has turned on them, not for Jesus' sake, but because they're jerks. 
don't, don't go home and tell your mother all of the ways in which she's a sinner and that she's debt bound for hell. That's not going to be a great way to have uh, Sunday afternoon. Some people introduce, con- some followers of Jesus introduce conflict into their world because they're jerks, not because of Jesus. That, that's not what he has in mind here. There will be a man who will turn against his father because of his father's faith. Why does he start with your father? Your father your closest, uh, was the leader of the family. He's worth, uh, worthy of the highest allegiance. Uh, uh, similar, next to it would be, of course, the mother, the leader of this family. And a daughter-in-law, well, she marries into the family, so she's supposed to adopt the family values, and, and, and what's to be important to her is to be important. Uh, the family values are important to her, and it, to, for her to turn against her mother-in-law is, is, is a terrible betrayal of what should be a very close relationship. Jesus here is quoting from Micah chapter 7. The prophet Micah uses these same lines, a man turning against his father and a daughter against her mother. And you know what what Micah has in mind? Micah is describing the kingdom of Israel under the leadership of King Ahaz. King Ahaz was corrupt, and he was so corrupt that his corruption was spreading to every place, to every business, every family, and the, the, the corruption that it was at the top was ruining the whole nation. And, and it, you know, you might think, well, it's just far away and it's just the king, but there was, his corruption was poisoning even down to family relationships. This is the way it is. There's corruption at the top and it just spreads. And, and Micah is describing, he's lamenting this under the terrible leadership we have. Look at how families are being destroyed. And most um, uh, Jewish interpreters of Micah 7 had this idea that, m- that the Messiah would come and fix the problems. When Messiah comes, he's going to fix our broken families. And, and he does. He, he does. The Bible talks about this. As a matter of fact, look at Malachi chapter 4. This is a prophecy of the coming of John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus. And here's this beautiful verse that describes the ministry that John the Baptist is going to have. What's he going to do? He's going to turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. He's going to fix broken families. That's beautiful. Or look at the priority in 1 Timothy 5.8 on your family. If anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So Jesus does fix broken families. Most often, Jesus fixes broken families, but sometimes he fractures them. He fractures them sometimes because he demands to be first. So that if a son says to his father, you choose, you either follow Jesus or me, Jesus says, pick me. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. If your mother says, you choose Jesus or me, Jesus says, choose me, choose, choose me. Don't put your son or daughter in this position of having to choose. So from the providence of God, God calls them to live overseas, serving him overseas, and they're going to take your grandchildren with them overseas, 
and you are very tempted to say to them, don't go, don't go. I don't want to lose my grandchildren. Don't put your, your child in the position of having to say, I'm, I'm choosing Jesus. I'm going to follow him. Jesus demands this preeminence more than your family. What's interesting in this passage, he doesn't mention husbands and wives in this passage, does he? He doesn't say anything about if your wife or your husband. But Paul addresses this in 1 Corinthians 7. In 1 Corinthians 7, earlier in the passage, he says, if you're married to someone who's not a follower of Jesus and they'll stay, stick with you, then um, continue to live with them. But look what he says in 1 Corinthians 7.15. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. Choose Jesus over your marriage. This is, I, who, who has the authority in your life to make this claim? There is no one on earth who has authority in your life to make this claim over you. Who does Jesus think he is? I suppose more important the question is, who do you think Jesus is? He says, uh, uh, he demands to, you love him preeminently more than your family, more than your own life, he says. Verses 38 and 39, whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. This is the first time in the Gospel of Matthew Jesus mentions the cross. He hasn't talked to his disciples at all about the fact that he's going to die on a cross. But the Jews would know what this means. Taking up your cross means you're going to the place of execution. It means death. Sometimes following Jesus means or feels like death. You can see that a little bit when he continues and he says, um, if you find your life, you're going to lose it. By finding your life, he means um, finding or building your whole life on what satisfies you here and in this world, in the here and now. My whole life is here and now. I'm going to build my happiness and satisfaction in this world. I'm going to find my whole life here. I'm going to live for this here. Jesus says, you, lose, you live that way, you will lose what you're so desperately trying to preserve. Sometimes following Jesus feels like death because he demands that you let go of the things that you think make you so happy. Uh, C.S. Lewis said this, Christ says, give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you. I have not come to torment your natural self, but to kill it. No half measures are any good. I don't want to cut off a branch here and a branch there. I want to have the whole tree down. I don't want to drill the tooth or crown it or stop it, but to have it out. Hand over the whole natural self. All the desires which you think are innocent as well as the ones you think are wicked. The whole outfit. I will give you a new self instead. In fact, I will give you myself my own will shall become yours. Love him more than your mother. Love him more than your father. Love him more than your own self. He demands it. Jesus doesn't bring peace. He brings conflict with your family, with your very self. Peace on earth 
Not really. Now, let's move on to the third thing that Jesus demands. Jesus demands, third, that you welcome his people pleasantly. That you welcome his people pleasantly. Now, the tone turns quite a bit here at the end of the Sermon on Mission. He turns here to uh, blessing and joy and fellowship, actually, from conflict. Um, he, he talks about welcoming his messengers. He's, uh, verse 41, welcome a prophet, welcome a righteous person, welcome, give a cup of cold water to a little one. Some people have tried to say that there's uh, three classes of Christians here. There's the prophets and the righteous people and, and the little ones. I don't think so because Jesus calls the little ones, the disciples, little ones all the way through the book. I don't think he's really got three classes in mind. He's just talking about his people in general. To welcome them is to receive their message and to believe their message. And it results in great uh, fellowship. Whoever welcomes you welcomes me, and anyone who welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. And verse 42 goes even further than this, than just this sort of welcome. There is even just giving a cup of cold water. Receive people with hospitality. Receive them with generosity. Receive them with gladness. Receive them with joy. Welcome their message and welcome them and do it hospitably, pleasantly, gladly, joyfully. I have the privilege of serving in this congregation as, as uh, uh, the main Bible teacher in this church. Here is a passage of scripture that Grace Baptist Church has mastered. And notice how, how, how Paul, I'm sorry, Jesus here, not Paul, <laughs> Jesus here talks about the reward. Welcome a prophet in the name of a prophet as a prophet, and you'll receive a prophet's reward. Welcome a righteous person, you'll receive a righteous person's reward. Even if you give them a cup of cold water, there's reward. You might think, you know, this is not much. I'm giving you a cup of cold water. And it's not. But your generosity, God is more generous than you are. Give them a cup of cold water and you have reward. Reward from God. Notice here, there's just joy, overflowing joy in this passage. There's good news from Jesus that comes from his people. There's a shared relationship. When you welcome that good news, there's a shared relationship between you and the, the messenger and between you and Jesus and between you and God the Father. There's this uh, fellowship, this joy. Then there's uh, uh, sharing in this reward. There's, there's a, just an abundance of gladness over receiving this good news. That's a great way for Jesus to end this message that has been so hard, so cold in some places, so sharp. There are people out there who will be glad to hear and receive the good news of Jesus. And there's multiplied joy when they become followers of Jesus. So find them and tell them. There's people in your neighborhood who are longing to hear this good word. There'll be great joy over this. Wanda Vassello writes about her friend Linda, who is a teacher, uh, and Linda teaches first grade. And on the first day of first grade, she had a little boy in her class whose name was Ryan. Ryan was an expert at kindergarten, and Ryan knows, knew that every day at noon, half-day kindergarten, it was time to go home. So he watched the clock very carefully, and as it got closer to noon and things were wrapping up for the moment, he started uh, getting his jacket on, he packed up his backpack, he was ready to get on the bus and go home. And Linda, his teacher, said to him, uh, Ryan, 
what are you doing? And he said, well, I'm ready to go home. And, and his teacher said, well, Ryan, that was kindergarten. Now you're in first grade. And in first grade at noon, we go to the cafeteria and we eat lunch. And then you're going to come back here for a couple more hours of, of teaching and, and learning. And then you're going to go home. Ryan stared at her with disbelief. And he said, who on earth signed me up for this program? <laughs> what? what is this? <laughs> you're not in kindergarten. You followers of Jesus, you're not in kindergarten. You are on mission for Jesus. It's not going to be easy. But don't worry about it. The rewards, the rewards are unbelievable. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and how we are thankful to you for this glad ending to this sobering message. Lord Jesus, we come and we acknowledge the demands that you have placed on our lives, that we love you preeminently and that we acknowledge you publicly. Sometimes we, we struggle with those things because we're fearful. Sometimes we struggle with these things because we're lazy, we're selfish, we're ashamed. So Lord, we come we come before you asking for your help again. This is a high bar that you have set for us, Lord Jesus, and, and we're not up to it. Those of us in this room who have followed you for decades, we, what comes to our mind is all the ways in which we, we fall short of this. Thank you for your patience with us. And oh, how we pray and ask for your help that we might honor you, love you wholly and preeminently, and look forward to that great reward that you offer those who welcome your message and your messengers and who speak on your behalf. Help us, we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying,